Mark chapter 14, and we're going to get rolling here. And uh, again, it is good to see everybody this evening. Uh, so we're down in verse 17, Mark 14, 17. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And, and again, in the evening, that's going to bring us back up to verse 12. And the first day of the unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover, his disciples said unto him, Where wilt thou that we go and prepare that thou mayest eat the Passover? So the evening of the 14th, and again, we were talking about this last time, how that uh, the, good evening, guys. Yeah, we just got rolling. Mark 14. So how, and we saw this last time at the end rather quickly, but the 14th day of the month, that is Passover, they start their, their evening at 6 p.m. So it's not, so like today's Wednesday, at 6 p.m. tonight, Thursday started. So you got to back it up. So really, 6 p.m. is over here. So it's in that nighttime, okay? And in that nighttime of the 14th, a lot of events are going to happen. The upper room, the betrayal, the trial, being carried over into Rome, scourged. And then he's led out during the daylight hours of the 14th. And that's when he's going to be killed. So it's a matter of some timing here. And again, it gets very confusing and really what helps, last time when we looked at that passage in John 18, talking about the preparation day, see, and, and everything. Because what they're going to do is they set that lamb out on the 10th, and they watch it. On the evening of the, on the 14th at 6 p.m., they begin to prepare it. They get it ready. They, and then during the daylight, they kill it, and they cook it, and then they eat it on the night between, uh, that then starts the, thir the Thursday, the 15th, see. So there's a preparation that's going on here, and in that, and, and again, for, again, for the Jews, Thursday, because today's Wednesday, started an hour ago, 6 p.m. So, so when we get over into the crucifixion, by the way, that's why it happens in that noon hour and where the skies, the sun's blocked out and everything and the ninth hour and so forth. And when we get over there, we'll, we'll spend a more time in that. But it's in the nighttime. So we are in the evening of the 14th. An evening and a morning make the day. And again, this is where he's going to now, we're going to go up into the upper room. And again, he's going to be betrayed, be handed over to Rome, scourged. And then he's killed. And so we're in the evening, we're in the night before. And in the evening, he cometh with the twelve. So the night before he's dying, and the hours before, he's going to eat the Passover with them. And he's going to do some things here. And everything that we're reading here, the how that Christ died, all of these events have meanings have a meaning behind them and associated with them. In, chat, in verse 12 to 15, he sends Peter and John in to the city. And they go find the guy, the, they're going to go find the place with the upper room. But what does he say? Go find the man with the pitcher of water, okay? Which is going to be an odd thing because at that time, the ladies are the ones that carried the pitcher and the women did. 
But yet, when you think about pictures of water, a picture of water, that's a limited supply of water. Eventually, the water does what? Runs out. It's done. So you've got a man carrying a limited supply of water that's going to take them to a place. They're going to follow him where the Messiah is going to come and come in and do and be and, and everything and host this meal. Now, if you hold on to Mark, just think about this. Come over to John 7 because the pitcher of water is going to, and, and again, the, the man's carrying it. They don't know the man, how they're identifying him is what he's doing. Then they go in and they talk to him and they say, hey, the master said you got to, they go in and they do. So we have that picture of uh, unknown members of the believing remnant that are underground, if you will. They're hiding. They're not out publicly doing because of the persecution. But look at John 7, 38. Jesus, uh, verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of what? Well, now, he says, I'm, I'm the Messiah. I'm going to put an unending supply of water in you. You've got a limited supply but when the Messiah shows up, it's unending. Remember John 2, the marriage at Cana there? They got six pots of wine. They run out. They, they run out of wine. They got six pots of water. And what does he do? Well, they run out, so there's no joy. There's no, uh, 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 it's an empty, joyless situation. And that pictures that vain religious system. And the Lord, actually, John 2 is his first miracle he ever did, and it's a dispensational miracle that says that he's now there to do what? Bring joy and to bring uh, uh, a, a endless supply of blessing to them. So they're going to come here now. Again, six pots, run out, joyless, no more fun. He shows up, takes the water, turns it to wine, and we have an endless supply. So when you come back to Mark 14, every little detail in this has got a picture behind it. So when he comes, he come, verse 17, he comes with the 12. And that's an interesting thing because when he comes with the, the 12 here, uh, look back at Matthew. Oh, Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory... And all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And do you remember in Matthew 19, what does he tell the apostles? Matthew 19, verse 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So here you got it. That's Matthew 19. Here you've got a picture of the Messiah coming into this upper room, this great room, and what, who's with him? The, the governing body over the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes. So here's the Messiah. He's come. And again, all of this activity has a spiritual significance to it for the believing remnant. Go back to Mark uh, 14. So it's in the evening. 
So we're in that time now. We're beginning those evening events. Uh, when we get over, if I remember, we'll see Pilate. And the Jews have to go wake Pilate up. Why? Because it's in that early hours of the, of the night or late hours of the night and early of the morning. And they got to wake him up. And then they're like, well, just do, do this so we don't mess with you later. <laughs> don't want to bother you again. Because, you know, I don't know if you've ever been woke up in the middle of the evening like that after a dead sleep. You're not exactly the happiest. I'm not the happiest camper. Easy there. Easy on the front row. <laughs> okay? So the thing is, is verse 18, and as they sat and did eat. So now they're going to do, now they're, they're sitting. They're resting. They act, it, this is now going to, some things are going to happen here now prior to the activity of the evening. Now, every, every, all the Gospels have this account in them. Again, Mark, it's quick, it's boom. You know, verse 19, they began to sorrowful and say unto him, uh, one by one, is it I? And another said, is it I? And he answered and said unto them, it is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to, the, to that man. I mean, we're done. And off Judas goes to betray him. But when you come into the other Gospels, you get a, a bigger picture, a little more detail. And, and really, if you come over to John 13, and so go to John 13, stick something in John 13, because we're going to kind of bounce around here. But he says they sat and ate. Now, it's an interesting thing, because what happens in John 13 Verse 23, you get a little discussion because it says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. So what do you get? You get the great big pictures done by the Italian Roman Catholics of the Last Supper. By the way, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't even look anything like it. The Lord is not a blonde-haired, Ethiopian-looking guy, or Ethiopian. European-looking guy at all. He's not that at all. Song of Solomon, uh, chapter 10, I think it is. Let me look real quick. Song of Solomon 5, verse 10 to the end of that chapter, gives a description of what the Messiah looks like. And he looks like a Middle Eastern Jewish man. That's what he looks like. He, You know, a little darker skin, black hair, black eye. I mean, dark, That that's who he is. He's not this you know, superstar, that the, all the pictures and paintings, and they've got them, you know, laid out all, you know, but leaning here. So there's some things that are happening here. And this issue about leaning. Now, come back with me to Amos chapter 6. And when we study the minor prophets here in a few years, um, we'll see some of this as we go here, as we think about this issue about leaning on him. Look at Amos 6. And in here we have a picture about uh, the, the furnishings and, and what they have around them. Amos 6, verse number 4. That lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the calves out of the midst of the stall. So, they ha so they're lying on beds of ivory and they've got couches. Okay, we would call that a lazy boy recliner. That's what we would say. You know the couches, you sit in them and your feet kick up and you 
foot line. That's what they're sitting on. Not a, not a bed like in a, uh, you think about the bed you sleep in. idea here where you can kick out the legs and you can relax. So they're sitting, on your way back to Mark 14 now, they're sitting as friends and they're eating. They're fellowshipping together. They're communing together. They're, they're having a wonderful time uh, with each other in, just in the presence of the Lord and it's really just the twelve. Um, if you come with me to Luke, Luke um, twenty, Luke twenty-two, Luke twenty-two. And if you look at verse fourteen. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. All right? And he said unto them, with desire, I have... Now, notice who's with him. The only people in the room is the Lord Jesus Christ and the twelve apostles. There's a weird idea that there are other people around, and it doesn't say that. If there was, it would say, and with other di disciples, see? It says the 12, very specific here. Why? Because they're the leadership, and he's getting them ready to be, operate and function in his absence, okay? Now, the only guy that there might be an exclusion to is Matthias because of what happens in Acts 1, but I don't even think he's up there. There's, a, there's an idea that Lazarus is there. I don't, there's no reason for Lazarus to be there. It says the 12. Actually, in each account, it's the 12. Mark 14, he comes in the evening with the 12. So he's, I, what do they do here? They're going to sit and they're going to eat. They're reclining on couches. They're having a time, and it's time to eat, okay? They're going to have a meal. They're going to eat the Passover meal. Now, look there at, at Luke 22, where we were, verse 14, okay? And again, when you think about the, the timing here of eating the Passover, it, it, it's, it, they don't eat in the night. They eat during the daylight. And they, in that evening between the 14th and the 15th. You've got to remember Leviticus 23 and Exodus 12 when they're leaving. What do they do? That dark, the death angel's coming. They've got to put the blood, post on, the, the blood on the doorpost and all that. And what do they do? They've got to be ready. We've got the staff in the hand. Why? Because on the day of the fifth, on the fifteenth, during the daylight, what are they doing? They're leaving Egypt. See, so on the fourteenth, during the evening, they're preparing everything. You know. By the way, you just can't kill it, kill the lamb and eat it. You got to do what with it? You got to cook it. They got to roast it. They got to do all this stuff to it. They got to get it ready. So then the next, in that morning, they eat, and then whatever's left, they got to destroy. So you've got, you know, again.
events going to happen, and what's happening is, is he says, I want to eat this with you before I go suffer, so we're sitting over here in the upper room, and what's he going to do? He's going to eat Passover with us. He's going to leave the upper room, go into the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to have a trial, he's going to be taken to Rome, and then he's going to be killed. So we've got a lot of stuff going on in here, and before he gets rolling, he says, I desire to, I desire to eat this with you before I go suffer and die. Okay? Now, come back with me to Numbers chapter 9, and notice that this is not out of line, and I know we looked at this last time, but just to get it back in our thinking here. In Numbers chapter 9, again, it's about Passover, and there's some uh, there's, there's some loopholes in the law. It's a wonderful thing, you know, when, when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He claims the loophole of ignorance. So instead of it being murder, it is manslaughter. If it was murder, what would God, ha- the Father, have to do? Wipe them out. But manslaughter allows that additional year of work with them. Acts one verse eight. So He changes the the, the sentence on them, and there's little things like that. If somebody does commit manslaughter, they have the opportunity to run to those cities uh, in the, of uh, refuge. And where the family of the victim can't get them. And when the family of the victim shows up there, they they are the ones that are violating the rules, not the guy who committed manslaughter. So it's just a unique experience. Anyway, uh, Numbers 9, watch verse 1. And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the first month of the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt. So what's going to happen in the first month? of the year. Remember Exodus 12, Exodus 13, they're going to have Passover. Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season. By the way, that word Passover was introduced into the English language by Wycliffe, John Wycliffe, way in the back in the day. He passed over, the death angel passing over the blood. So in the 14th day of this month, at even, ye shall keep it in his appointed season, according to the all the rites of it, and according to all the ceremonies thereof, shall you keep it. So what's going to happen? In the first of it, we've got Passover, okay? And then for the 15th to the 21st is that issue of unleavened bread. Now, sometimes this whole week is called Passover, 
sometimes it's called unleavened bread, okay? In, in John, actually, he'll say the Passover of the Jews. The Lord says that, and he's referencing the whole thing. He's not just picking one little component. Now, drop down, if you will, to verse. So the 14th of the month, what are they going to do? They're going to go, and they're going to do Passover. Uh, Numbers 9. Now drop down to verse 9. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. The fourteenth day of the second month at evening, they shall keep it and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So what's going to happen? If you're unclean, all right? So if you've been unclean because of a dead body, now what are you going to go do? You're going to go do the, the ceremonial process to... They're going to do the ceremonial... Hang on. So they're going to do the ceremonial process to cleanse themselves. They're going to go in, they're going to do, and so forth. Okay? Then when that's done, what can you do? You can go do the Passover, but when? The second month. Okay? If you're on a journey, now what? A journey where? Afar off. You're not just across town. You're afar off. See? Now what can you do? You can keep it later the next month. So here's what the Lord, now come back to Mark 14. Here's what the Lord's doing. He's on a journey afar off. He's left the third heaven. He's left heaven's glory. He's here. He's on a journey afar off, and he's about to be a dead body. So what can he do? He can move it up and be legitimate and be okay. Mark 14, Mark 14, and verse number 18. Mark 14, and look at what he's doing here. Verse 18, they, as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, one of you which eateth with me shall betray me. Now, what a way to liven up the meal. <laughs> what a way to get in there and say, hey, you guys doing okay? Good. When are you going to betray me? You know, again, if What's interesting is, is he already knows who it is. Back up in verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priest to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money and sought how he might conveniently betray him. So Judas is there. He's already got the 30 pieces of silver jingling in his pocket. And, again, they, the contract to betray the Lord is that of the price of a slave. And we looked at that. Again, fulfilling prophecy. So here we have him. What's he doing? He's now trying to figure out how to conveniently, quietly betray the Lord in fear of the people. So Jesus sits, they're sitting there. He says, hey, one of you guys is going to betray me. So one of them. One of the ones that he chose, he chose Judas. He chose, chooses the 12. He says, look, guys, we're eating together. We're sharing fellowship. We're sharing friendship. 
you're eating with me. I'm going to dip the sop with you. you I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm loving you. I've washed your feet. I've accepted you, yet, you know what? One of you is going to betray me. Now, come back to John 13, and notice how John does it. John 13, verse 1. Because it's an interesting thing here about what's happening. The scene. John 13, 1. Now, before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now you've got to watch the the way that the, the verses are reading here. They're already, supper's ended. Okay? But notice it says that the devil having now put into the heart of Judas. And Luke 22, we'll see over there that the devil entered into Judas. But how did he enter into Judas? In his heart. See? He put it into his heart. Well, how did that happen? Come back to chapter 12. And just remind yourself, chapter 12. How, how did that get? How did all of that get into Judas's heart, into his thinking? And chapter twelve, verse four. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? What what happened there? You remember Mary? She breaks open the spikenard and washes the Lord's head and feet and everything, and and makes that wonderful sacrifice of worship to Christ and the worshiping of Christ and that wonderful that wonderful uh, just picture of he's he's our messiah he's our savior he's our everything and yet Judas has what the opposite he's going the other direction verse 5 why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor you see he he's got an opposite attitude what in the world's going on here? The great waste. Why was this wasted? You know what? We could have really done And yet, really, in reality, what's happening here? His heart's being exposed for what is, what is it? Verse 6. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bags and bare what was put therein. And again, I'll just remind you, when we were looking at Judas... In Mark 14, we went to 1 Timothy 6 there for the love of money, okay? And it talks about covetousness, which Colossians 3 says is idolatry. How did he got into Judas's heart was the love of money, was the coveting of money. And uh, he's, he's, he's got a foothold here. So when you come back now to chapter 13 of John, John 13, if you look across the page there at verse 27, and after the sop, Satan entered into him. See, there's a process here. Satan doesn't enter into him in the beginning. What gets him in the beginning is he's given a place for Satan to to work and got a foothold. See, that's why Paul in Ephesians 4 says, don't give the devil devil a place. Don't let him get in, get a foothold. Judas did that by the covetousing of the money and everything. Now Satan personally has what? 
entered into him. And off he's, he, so he's moved from just putting the idea and the thought in his mind and having the hearts be the, be the issue. Now he's entered into, literally, in con, Judas is controlled by Satan. And Judas literally, Satan has personally taken control and is pushing the moment to get Christ so he can kill him. Because what does Satan think? If I kill him, then we're good to go, see? And I've won. So when you come back, uh, look back at verse 18, 13, 18. The Lord says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. And he quotes Psalms 41. I, 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 this, uh, this very fascinating, that verse. I, I've claimed you. You're mine. I picked you. Not all of you are in this case. But notice he, he says that he lifted up his heel against me. Now, you go back to Psalms 41, it's talking about Judas and in, in talking about his betrayal and, and about Judas himself. And he says, it's like Psalms 41, guys. That's what it's like. And he that eateth bread with me. And, and look back there at Psalms 41, just so you see it. By the way, the lawnmower, that's uh, Brian and Milka. They were running late this morning. So Psalms 41. Look at Psalms 41. Look at verse 9. Psalms 41, 9. Here's the quote. Again, he's talking here, and he says, Yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. See? My own familiar, I loved you, you're mine, we're fellowshipping, and yet this is what you're going to do to me. You're going to betray me. Now think about lifting up his heel. Doesn't that sound a lot like Genesis 3? Yeah, that pops to pop in your mind. So go to Genesis 3. Hold on to John. You see, all of this has significance. It isn't just, ah, you know, we'll throw this in there and make it sound good. No, there's a reason for it. Genesis 3, and watch verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Now, this is God cursing the serpent. Okay? And again, the serpent is the spiritual character of Satan. It is not a snake wrapped around an apple tree. It's not an apple anyway. It's a vine. It's a grape. Okay? But it's not a snake. It's, he's dealing with the character of the adversary. Okay? He's sneaky. He's trickster. He's slimy, he's disgusting. I'll give you the chills, okay? Then he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt what? Bruise his heel. Now, go back to thir John 13 and watch how he said that here. Verse 18. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. What's that? The betrayer is trying to, he's trying to, he's going to take the doom of the adversary and reverse it to be a success. 
when Genesis 3 says, he's going to crush you. You're just going to bruise him, but he's going to crush you. So what he does here is, is what, what, what the betrayer's doing, what the adversary's doing, is it, he's making it out that the Lord is the one who's going to perish, crushing his head. And I'm just going to get a little bru- See, he's trickster. He just changed it all up. And again, Psalms 41, that's what he's doing. So come back to Mark 14. Mark 14. See, again, Mark is just on. He's quick. He's moving. There isn't anything more to it. I mean, but yet when you get out like John and get over here in Luke in a minute, what's going to happen? Hold on to John 13, by the way. It should come in there. It's just all of these little details running around. Mark 14, verse 18. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say unto one by one, Is it I? And another said, Is it I? Now, this is an interesting thing here. They begin to say, Is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Is it me? Not, Is it me? Is it, is it I? And what that demonstrates is their guilty conscience. They don't have a clear conscience. Okay, we'll see a guy in just a second here who has no guilty conscience. And the reason for that is go back to verse 4. When Mary does what she does with the ointment and and, and so forth, and when we looked at this, verse 4, and there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor, and they murmured against him. See that? You see, the some, some of the apostles joined Judas in his objection. They joined Judas in the rebellion. So the some here, so some of these guys, Judas is the first one to speak. John 12, see. But some of them did what? They joined right in with him, said, yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point, Judas. And they, so when they say in verse 19 of Mark 14, is it I, is it I, they've got a guilty conscience here because they're not quite sure if they're going to be the ones betraying the Lord or not. You follow that? See, they're, they're not just going to sit. Now, come back to John 13. Because here's a guy that doesn't have a guilty conscience. All right, John 13, watch verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in the spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now here's the context. And out of the group, there's one guy that's completely different than the other 11. Okay? And it's this one that's leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. That's the first time in John, he, in, well, in Scripture, he ever uses that phrase, one of his disciples whom he loved. Okay? He'll use it again in John 21, but it's right here. And it's a tremendous insight into what's happening. All right, verse 23. 
There is one disciple who completely understood who he was in the context. He understood who, whom Jesus loved. Remember in Ephesians 1 where we're accepted in the beloved? See? If, we, if we're right where we're supposed to be. He, he had, by the way, in John 21, you learn, look over there at John 21, just so you see this. John 21. John 21. And look at verse 20. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following, which also leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, which is it he that betrayeth me? Verse 24. This is the disciple which testified of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So the one whom Jesus loved is the one who wrote the gospel of John, and we, we presume, I mean, assume, I guess, that's John. All right? So back here in John 13, you see, we understand. What does John understand? He's the one, he's living in a, con, a clear conscience that he loves the Lord Jesus Christ because he knows who he is. He knows that I'm not betraying that man because he's the son of God. He's the Messiah. See, he's the one. So in 1323, when, well, verse 24, watch what happens there. Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he would ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then lying on Jesus' breast said unto him, Lord, who is it? You know, Peter, so think about this. You've got the Lord in the middle, if you will. And on his right hand sits John. Beyond John sits Peter. Peter says, hey, ask him. Now, by the way, John, it's John whom the Lord hanging on the cross says, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. It's John that's there with him at the, at the end. It's John, and by the way, John, in the scripture record, John's the only male believer at the cross. The rest of them have run. Peter denied him, and Peter's gone until after the resurrection, and then Peter shows up. By the way, it's Peter that goes into the tomb first, and John is kind of, I know he said he wasn't going to be here, but I just need to check. <laughs> You know, and he's kind of, hold on, Pete, let's make sure, you know, and it's John. So Peter looks at John and says, ask him. Now, notice what he says in verse 25. Lord, is it I? See, he didn't say that. He said what? Lord, who is it? He knows it isn't him. And the only one in the whole group with the clear conscience is John, not because he didn't have failures or messes up or anything, but rather he understood who he was in Christ. He understood that I'm a part of the believing remnant, I'm part of that little flock, I'm part of this, and I know that I'm good to go. He understood 
13.1, having loved uh, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. John knew, that's me, and I don't have to worry about if I'm, because I'm not betraying him, see. So he's got a clear conscience here. Pete, hey, ask him who it is. <laughs> see. Verse 26, then Jesus, Jesus answered, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, that, that thou doest do quickly. Now, think about the sop, the dipping it, all right? You guys ever have Italian beef and you got the little au jus cup and the, the gravy, they call it gravy, and you dip it in there? That's the idea, Okay. And he dips it. And, and, he, and he, you take a donut and dip it in your coffee. You ever do that? I do. Sorry. <laughs> Usually it's tea. It's not coffee. But that's the idea here. The idea is they're sharing it. John. Lord, who is it? See. So think about this. Here's the Lord Jesus Christ sitting John and Peter and Judas is sitting on his left hand, sitting right here, okay? So you've got this scene here. This isn't yelling across the room and getting up and doing. They're, they're right here together. They're communing together. And what that does is that brings us to Psalms 109. So go back to Psalms 109. Again, all these little details... Mark just quickly goes through them, and we get more out of John and Luke and so forth. Look at Psalms 109, verse 1. Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. Okay? So that's the picture. Now look at verse 6. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. All right? So if the judge is here, come to Zechariah 3. Zechariah 3. The judge is here. Where does the prosecuting attorney sit in the courtroom? The judge's left hand, but whose right hand? The defendant guy, the one he's prosecuting. See it here, Zechariah 3, verse 1. And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to what? Resist him. Where's So the Lord's here, Joshua is sitting there, and to his right hand is who? Satan. So who's on? He's on the Lord's left hand. See? Why? Because Psalms 109 says, where's Satan going to stand? On the right hand of, the, of the, those he's going to resist. And so, again, the room, you've got to think about the courtroom. Now come back to John 13. 
So again, you've got the Lord, got Peter, I'm sorry, John and Peter, and then you've got Judas Iscariot. All right? Uh, I know I told you John 13. Uh, hold on to that. Get Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 21. Matthew 26, 21. Matthew 26, 21. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? Now, Mark's got him saying, who is it? Is it I? Is it I? Not who is it? Is it I? Is it I? But notice what, they're, what are they saying? Lord, is it I? Okay? Now, verse 25. Then Judas, well, just read verse 24 so you see 23, and he answered and said, He that dip, dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. <laughs> that's going to be a, that's a startling statement. Now watch verse 25. Then Judas, which betrayed him. See how the betrayal is already done? He's got the 30 pieces jingling in his pocket. He's just now got to figure out how to get the Lord delivered. The contract's been made. The money's paid. I just got to make my delivery. But watch what he says. Answered and said what? Master, is it I? He said unto him, thou hast said. Notice how everyone else said what? Lord, recognition of who he is. But what did Judas say? Master. You see, he's not Lord in Judas's mind and in his heart. Judas, Satan has put it in the heart of Judas that's going to come along and alter the understanding of who the Lord is. And Judas says, Master, everybody else called him Lord, who he is. Come back, uh, Mark. Well, get, get John 13. Because I told you to keep John, didn't I? Now watch John 13. 13. The Lord's talking to him. He says, ye call me Master and Lord. And ye say, well, for so I am. What are they calling? Well, one's going to call him Master. Everybody else is going to call him Lord. And then the other apostle that he loved ain't going to say doesn't say is it I at all. He says it ain't me. <laughs> it is not me. So when you come back, come back to Mark 14 here. Mark 14. And look again here at verse 20. Mark 14, 20. So they ask, is it I? And he answered and said unto them, it is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth, again, as it is written of him. Say, woe, <laughs> as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Man, what a context. 
again, see the pictures. Here's the Son of Man, and he's going to go and, and do what the Father had said that he was going to do. As it is written, I'm going. I'm the, 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 so you have the prophetic sovereignty of God, to use the big word. Okay? But then he says, woe to the man. Woe to Satan and Judas, who are going to do what? They're going to make it all happen. Everything that God the Father said was going to happen, Judas has a choice to say, no, I don't want to participate. Satan has that choice, but they don't. They go and they do what? They make it happen. So there you have the other side of the coin where you have the responsibility for that wonderful free choice of rebellion. You're going to pay the consequence. It would have been better if you had never been born. And again, we see what's going to happen to Judas. He goes, throws the money down, goes out and hangs himself. See? And that's the thing. That, now, come over to Luke 22. we got five minutes. We can do this. Look at Luke 22 on this. You see, when you go against what God said, you're going to bear the consequences of that rebellion. You think about Adam. How many sins did it take to get kicked out of the garden? Just one act of rebellion. That's it. And he was gone. Look at Luke 22. Look at verse 21. But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. As it was determined. We're going to go over to Acts 2 and see that. Because Luke's going to use it in Acts 2. But what? Whoa. When Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ, again, my own familiar friend, eat with me. Yet you're going to do what? Go. You see, Judas didn't have to be that man. He made the choice that caused him to be in that position. It was, come, over, come on over to Acts 2. It was his decision to be in that position. So guess what? It is now his to be accountable for it. Look at Acts 2. Acts 2, 22. 23. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Okay? So there it is. There's, the, there's God's side. I'm doing this. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. God said, I'm doing this. What Israel do? went and killed him. And they kill him with wicked hands, unbelief. Now, that's going to be critical because we're going to see that they could have killed him by faith and it would have been okay. See, We'll, we'll look at that in the Psalms maybe here in, in, a, in a couple studies, okay? But notice predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Look, hold on. Look over at First Peter chapter one. It's it's just 
as it is written, as it was determined. 1 Peter 1, if you look at verse 20, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, and off you go. What? What? Foreordained. Where? Before the foundation. Uh, it's, it, the Father had this plan for the Son to come right on time, the 14th of the, and to be that Passover lamb, and his death, burial, resurrection, right on time. 14th, right there. Boom. And it's all happening according to the plan. So when you come back to, to Mark 14, and on your way, stop in 1 Corinthians 2, you see? But be, just because the Father had the plan, it doesn't take away the responsibility of, of man, of Israel, of Satan, of the actors, of Judas, or of any of them. They don't. They didn't crucify the Lord, betray the Lord, based on well, I'm going to go do it because Psalms 41 says I've got to do it. Not at all. They did it out of what? Unbelief. They did it out of hatred. They did it out of pure boom. And it's interesting that God let it happen. See, He didn't stop it. He let it happen. And the re 1 Corinthians 2, here's why. 1 Corinthians 2, and by the way, you only understand this because you understand right division and the Apostle Paul to complete this picture for us. Verse 6, howbeit we speak, or verse 7, sorry, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. God planned it, and he permitted, he allowed the cross work of Christ to go through. And he says, woe to the man that participated in that, because it wasn't faith that caused them to crucify Christ. It was rather rebellion and unbelief. And those that are in rebellion and unbelief, they're held responsible. They're held accountable because they're living in unbelief rather than living by faith. Okay? Um, come back to Mark 14. On Sunday, uh, I, when we get down into Romans 16, there 27, we see that God, God let it happen. Why? Because it was what he determined before the foundation of the world. And you know what he does? He let Satan do all the dirty work. And he says, see, you did all that dirty work, the work that was going to destroy you, and I win. You lose. <laughs> and it, the, it's, just the, the, it's just the awesomeness of God's wisdom. <laughs> and I know awesomeism, okay? It's just, wow. It's flabbergasting, actually, that he just kept a secret. He let Satan do all the, the hard, the dirty work. And he says, nope, you're, you're done, and I win. Now, again, go back there to 1421, and it's time to quit. So the consequences of sin and rebellion and unbelief belongs to the individual. 
all right? And again, the tragic, woe, good were it for that man if he had never been born. That's the tragic end of it all. And you, I hope you know Romans 1, where God gave him up, gave him up, gave him up. That's the harshest judgment God could ever do to man, was to turn him loose on, and let him be on his own. And when God leaves you to yourself, there's nobody else to blame but yourself. And that's the end. So the tragedy of Judas in all this is... Uh, he comes over and does all this, and therefore he carries that title of the son of perdition, which is a title associated with none other in Scripture but the Antichrist. And uh, that's that wonderful picture of what the adversary is really doing, and the end result is death. And that's what we're going to get. So we'll pick up in verse 22, the hour is up. But I, I just wanted you to see every little detail in here means something. It's not just wasted away. Okay? All right. Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word. And above all, Lord, we just thank you for who we are in your son. And we thank you for all of that and the provisions thereof of Calvary. In your name we pray. Amen.